0: We can go ahead and, since we've already started the discussion, is to keep it rolling right into the lesson. Uh, let me uh, open with a word of prayer. Father God, uh, we just do praise you uh, for this uh, great morning uh, that Father, we come in the fullness of worship to you. Father, we just pray that uh, we would just be purged of um, just anything that would just distract us from the purity of that worship to you. Lord, we... Just count this as a great, great privilege uh, to be in your presence, to be, as even we've been reminded even of this week, of uh, just the outpouring of love and support, and to be in the fellowship of believers that uphold uh, each other in prayer. Father, in love, uh, in the deepest of love um, for each other. And Father, it's just truly an example of christ likeness and godliness that, um, Father, that is pleasing to you. So I'm reminded of that, and Father, we are blessed by that. I thank you for your word, and even as we continue in this study of First Peter, Lord, that uh, we are shaped, we are challenged, and Father, we, the, the shades of our eyes would be opened Uh, to a greater understanding in the depths of perspective of ultimately uh, Christ's example and His sacrifice for us and our present grace that we draw from and ultimately to future glory. And so I just do pray that Your Spirit will lead as we continue in our time of sharing and in discussion. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we're... uh... We're picking up in our study of first Peter um, this morning in chapter four, verses twelve to nineteen. But let me give you three words and just give me your reaction to the three. Surprise, trouble, and confusion. Surprise, trouble, and confusion. Think about those three words for a second. And now apply that to something. Apply it to a circumstance. Apply it to a present-day situation. And yet, let's contrast that with these three words. Blessing, benefit, and divine protection. Blessing, benefit, and divine protection. Now, of those two, those six words, the first three and the, the second, latter three, which ones are the best? that settle best with us. We want a camp. We want blessing. We, in fact, we want more blessing. More and more blessing. We love the word benefit. That is a favor. It is a positive. And obviously, we want uh, divine protection. And in fact, I believe that that is what all believers, at many times, we fall into this level of expectation always into those three don't we? Blessing, benefit, and protection. Well, we already have that. Okay? But yet, let's go back to the first three, and that is, surprise, trouble, and confusion is, I believe, where we find these believers that are Peter's audience. And I would say, and submit, is that that's many times where we find ourselves. I very, uh, Naturally and very uh, selfishly, responded this week when I got the call at six o'clock from Kirk Balisa. It's exactly how my natural response was. Now I was surprised because she had just been at our house a couple of days before that. Just, just everything was just great. She was we were praying for her because she felt that she had some maybe some disc problems, that she was having some circulation problems. And we were I was troubled by that. And immediately my my surprise then led to this trouble of what's now going to what's gonna happen? Is she gonna be okay? And that led then further to just my confusion on it as I tried to process it to say, well, Why now? Well, blessing, benefit, and divine protection in contrast to that. And so, what have I learned? I learned shortly thereafter when I got the call that I shouldn't be surprised. (laughs) In fact, that is the very exhortation that is the heart of this passage that we've been studying is that don't think it's strange concerning the very fiery ordeal of the trials that we encounter. We will experience these things. In fact, absent them in our lives, we don't grow. That was my conclusion on that. And so as we pick up this study in 1st Peter this morning, these believers, they were not expecting so much to be hatefully persecuted possibly. Or the fact is is that as he wrote this that they would be in themselves were looking around at the circumstances and we're troubled or perplexed. Oftentimes, we expect the fullness of Christ to just be this wonderful, everyday, constant blessing. And what we're going to focus on this morning is, is that it is. It is. And where Peter would say is to keep on rejoicing in this suffer, suffering is something that goes against the fact that we, get, we take those words and we separate them. And so as we go through this today, we're going to look at, again, these spiritual benefits. The motivation that we have to actually rejoicing and the ways specifically that we are reproached or those things for the name of Christ and the privilege that we have to suffer. In our study, we've gone through and we have identified as our theme in this is that from this is to glean is what would help us in our approach during Suffering and very circumstantial. In that is expecting the suffering, is what we've gone through the last couple of weeks. This rejoicing in suffering we will pick up today, and an evaluation of our suffering as there is a contrast of that actual from the standpoint of those that would suffer for the right reason, for those that would suffer for the wrong reason, in contrast. And then next week we will conclude with this 17, 18, and 19 and entrusting ourselves to God with this final call. So, our objective, as we mentioned last week, is that we want to bring into intimate unity here this recognition as believers of our sufferings in unity with the the sufferings of Christ, and the intimate relationship that exists between those two, until we can make this relationship of the two of these Rejoicing becomes very challenging for us, and until we bring those together, I believe that 's what make, will make the difference. So if, as we go through this is, Worsby, uh Warren Worsby, in one of his commentaries, wrote something that was very interesting to me kind of i'd like to grab a hold of examples for me, and um, I think of Paul when he, wrote, he says, "God never promised that, that they would miss the storm, but he did, and he has promised." that they would make it to the harbor. I was thinking of Paul. He might have had that very same exhortation on the ship it was before it was shipwrecked. And ourselves, from the standpoint, is just that we're not going to miss these opportunities where God is going to be glorified through suffering in our lives. He will be glorified through that. And so therefore, it's no surprise. It's no trouble. And there's no confusion. We cannot be perplexed about it. It's very clear in Scripture. As we expect this suffering, as we says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Peter is making it very clear, and for us as well in our lives, is that suffering is inevitable. This persecution and suffering will occur, and therefore there there should be no no surprise. The, John fifteen. This very promise is literally it was bound up in the initial teaching of Jesus to his, his very disciples. In John fifteen 18, I'll read it to you. It says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, As servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christ is our master. We are not above that. In fact, it says right there, we will be persecuted. And the suffering is the price of discipleship. In Paul's writings to to, uh, Timothy's writing, in 2 Timothy, his letter, chapter 3, verse 12. I go back up to 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, Paul and Timothy, manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, love, and perseverance, persecutions, afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution the price of discipleship is suffering we will be persecuted for Christ and yet as believers we still need the assurance of God's love that's what we have scripture for that is in, in prayer we see in this even in this um, term of affection where Peter would use is this term of tenderness this beloved we are Christ's beloved and so, suffering is God's will for those whom He loves. chapter 2, in verse 11 of First Peter. You are, not, you are not only a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people. You are also His only beloved. And so, the first thing that we focused on here is from the standpoint of it, the inevitability of, of persecution and of suffering is r- reminders of our relationship with God, this agape love. The disciples, and these are some of the review from last week's And our it says, Peter's saying, don't be surprised. Our natural attitude, it's just as I've experienced this week, is that of itself is, I considered it unusual that this was going to happen to someone that we had just been talking to. It's not. Not at all. And so Peter is saying, and this is the exhortation to be, is to be ready. Is to gird up my mind, to keep sober, and to keep, fix my hope, and be of sound judgment. And as these reminders, does this ever happen to you? And when, when you're studying scripture, and you fail in that area. And then it's like, I well, I got an example that I can share that just happened in two days ago. It tests our faith and the genuineness of it. It grows our faith. And I, what I really appreciated about this example of this fire ordeal is this purging. And I believe Peter may have taken this picture of this fiery ideal from some, the prophecy of Malachi that was talking about the purging itself as because he's going to talk a little bit later on in the passage about the judgment and the, the cleansing itself that occurs. And so with this, it is this testing of genuine faith where God has tried us with fire the spiritual purity in a, that would grow us and it proves the genuineness of our faith. And so this is where we pick up. So turn with me to 1 Peter 4, if you're not there, as we pick up in reading. And what I'd like to do is to start with verses 13 and 14. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of, of, the, of glory of God rests upon you. I'm reading from the New King James, and that's the NASB. So within this, as we look at today a couple of key things, we're going to look at our, our attitude itself, as well as our motivation for that. The first thing that comes from this is this exhortation from Peter is to this, 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 keep on rejoicing. This is our attitude. And it's at the heart of this part of the passage in there. It says, but rejoice, or to keep rejoicing. I like keep on rejoicing. And this is the attitude that we must have throughout the trial. It's not just at the beginning of it, it is amid it and through it. Anything that can come against us for the sake of righteousness is cause for rejoicing. Luke chapter 6, verse 22. It's the passage in the Beatitudes. Let me read it to you. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And so in this reference the same passage in Matthew chapter 5 that we have there, that this rejoicing and being glad for our reward in heaven is the greatness, and here is the attitude that's just really embedded throughout this this call is this, anything that could possibly be happening every single circumstance for the sake of righteousness is always for the cause for rejoicing in that please
1: and so, I mean, one of the key things that people struggle with, I think, is by voice and circumstances, what's happening, so, like thinking that that's the, how about the circumstance relished in two things? That his name,
0: or it's laid up mm. it's, as a result of that, through that, which in our situation
1: could be as a result of going through that. So, for the kingdom here, and then also for the, it's both of those things, I think, which is I mean, important to kind of get a sense of how to think rightly about. It what we're going through. Would you want to say something? Oh. Thinking off of that done, uh, when you get in certain things you were saying to begin with, this confusion, condemnation, fries, and in that cycle that goes on in you, know, and yet that helps what you said. thats supposed to be jumping, but turning cartwheels and all that kind of excitement. It's a different height than the outcome putting our eyes on that. It's really touching. type like, <laughs> you know, Hebrews 11.6, how do we, the only way we please God in our life, so it's, that's faith considered comes into existence. Eyes in the Garden of Gethsemane lives through to deny his own the restoration.
0: Now on You know, in the, in the, in the Matthew passage, it, it makes it a little bit clearer than the, uh, than the Luke passage, but... It, it, you see this—that uh, there is blessing that is in in. It's like it's like that persecution carries with it the the blessing, it, it, and so if you if you resist it, you, you you miss it, and that's what he says: is blessed are you when they revile? This is the Matthew passage. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Blessed are those that who are persecuted. So, I guess what I'm saying is, is that the, the persecution itself it carries with it the blessings of God. So, how we respond to that, I think, is exactly how you're you're saying that. Um, and I can relate to Peter because our, our, we see that now, and I, I appreciate the fact that. He is this example of failure <laughs> and restoration. And how, you know, get...
1: human like we are. Jesus God. Back to creator that created us. Created a familiar object that he knew what we were going to be like. Had a short memory curve mm-hmm. that if we don't face trials, we just kind of hum along and slowly go downward. Trials refresh us in the way that, okay, we've got to get over this trial. Our faith comes up. We've got this curve going back up again to a high level. So a trial is not that bad in that sense. It brings our faith back to a high level. Those recurring trials for our faith at a higher level.
0: And I think what's what we're going to see is this passage progresses in here is that how does that happen and it it happens with through the spirit it, it, it's it's the work of the spirit in us and this is where it's going to be so clear and we're going to look at a couple of parallels to that i think that will how do you cultivate that and i think a, part of it is through the experiences and how we respond with the times of surprise trouble confusion and we we vet that in our minds life should be thought of in terms of a contrast with the next and while it is true that we suffer now in order to experience glory later in verses 12 and 13 peter insists that we must also think of in terms of continuity now let's go back and understand what this statement is saying is that if you look at it when he is saying but rejoice to the extent that you are partaking of christ's sufferings And so this is the now that he's talking about, is that we must rejoice now in order to rejoice later. Because what he is saying in here is that, look, rejoicing, keep on rejoicing to the extent you are partaker of suffering, but when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. In fact, it's a whole different degree of joy. It's a joy of exultation is what that second part of that passage is saying. And so, we, get, we fall into this thing now from the suffering that is occurring now, and yet we lose sight of this greater rejoicing, which is the continuity that I think we're trying to see here, is that rejoicing now in order to rejoice later. Peter is tying this together, and as this, this letter continues in there, this is ultimately this focus, is that he's going to now take us to this place of the exaltation in Christ's second coming. It is the future glory. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. In verse 41, here it is. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. They were counted it worthy. They were rejoicing now. They were rejoicing now for the very suffering and the shame that they were incurred, incurring for the name of Christ. Uh, authentication. <laughs> it's substantiated.
1: <laughs>
0: there, there, it was the moment... Of intimacy and relationship that we were trying to get to. In other words, it was the relationship of their suffering to the very relationship of Christ's sufferings. That's what that means. Rejoicing that they're kind of worthy to suffer the shame for his name. The very sufferings of Christ they too experienced. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There's the rejoicing now. Rejoice now. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There's the the outgrowth. There's the stuff that happens through it. It's growing us. But let the patience have its perfect work. They may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Ultimately, unto glory. Count it all joy. In our own strength, this is not possible. But it is possible through our Standing with Christ and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit—it is the very fruit, one of the key fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? For the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, and keeps going from there. Love first, joy second. Galatians five twenty-two, First Thessalonians. I just want to read that First Thessalonians passage. We're from always familiar with the uh, the Galatians passage. Let me read Galatians one six to you. Uh, And you become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. Again, you become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Because of our standing in Christ and the fruit of the Spirit, it is a supernatural response. The rejoicing is supernatural. So, I can't, I, 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 that's why I, I failed. Because I was finding, oh, I've got to be rejoicing in this, in this circumstance. So I'm looking for it. It's not possible in the flesh. So, let's, that in itself now starts to build on our motivation. We understand our attitude, that to be, of rejoicing. But what is our motivation? What the motivation for suffering? Peter writes, "...to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ." And when we see that, it indicates that the suffering is what is right, for righteousness. And as a result of that, in that relationship that I was talking to earlier, it is this partnership that is created. We're partners with Christ... In the very kind of sufferings that Jesus endured, suffering for what is doing right, sharing in Christ's rejection and his reproach. And we're going to get some examples of this. I want you to be thinking about that a little bit. What does that look like? The Acts passage that we just read in Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42, where there was this being dishonored for the name of Christ. So when we talk about again about this sharing of the, Christ, the sufferings of Christ, it is doing what is right. Peter just said this, remember that. Going back into chapter 2 of uh, 1 Peter, he says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Doing what is right. Acts 9, verse 4. Paul on the the Damascus road, what did Jesus say to him? Paul, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What, he, what did he mean by that? What Paul was doing himself is that when he said, why are you persecuting me? He was referring to all that Paul was doing. Not what was doing was right, but he was doing it because he was doing it to Christ. This relationship is this partnership in the sufferings of Christ. That's what he meant by that. That sinners persecute us, they persecute Christ. So the relationship is really this focus. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17, I love this phrase in here. It says, that the Lord stood with me. That's what gives me... That's the blessing. You know, that's like what Matthew was saying is that there's blessing that is carried with the persecution... It's because it's carried, the Lord is there. So our motivation is the sufferings of Christ. To the degree which indicates that our eternal ward is, is a direct reflection of our earthly suffering. Could you turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24? To the degree. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Someone uh, could read that. Sufferings for you,
1: what is lacking. For the sake
0: of his body okay let us together I'm trying to understand what does he what Paul mean by this when he is saying sort of this this filling up what is lacking i I'm, I'm we could easily get confused about that what do you think that that means i he's rejoicing now okay there's the now for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church do you think he's Paul's point is.
1: What's he not saying? Suffering
0: was Right? So then, all persecution stopped. It's like he, it's like he's piling on. Okay? This goes back to the John passage. Our relationship with Christ, the world will hate you. And what Paul is saying is, is that he is essentially, he's like he's experiencing the continuation of the things because they didn't get enough. The enemy's attack—in other words, the world's hate of Christ and the constant persecutions there—he himself is just—it's it's continuing. In other words, Mark is right. Everything was finished in the cross, but the enemies—they didn't get—they didn't get enough. They wanted more. Think about that. Think about the evil in the world. Is that they got you down, and they're going to keep on hitting? Is that they want more? Why? Because that is this world that hates. It, it just continues. And so, what's happened in here is that that persecution now is that the enemy is continuing and it, it's the flow constantly at us. It's this hatred from the world. What Paul is essentially saying is that, look, in fact, when he writes this, where is he at? I'm in prison. Pointing potentially to the very things that of this outflow of the hatred that is actually reflected in here, and so what he is doing this from the standpoint of motivating us. For the fact is, is that it's going to keep. They're going to keep piling it on. So they, they
1: did, but huh, that's in the complication of the damn world, which is us. that the of Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Children heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if offered with Him in order that we may also be glorified. Hmm. If we suffering in the right light, it is a fertilizer that grows
0: us. And what, and what Peter's going to take us to is he's even going to give us a contrast of the fact is is that what are you suffering for? What's the suffering look like? Are you suffering for the right reasons or for the wrong reasons? And that's the contrast that he gives in there when he starts referring to you know like don't be suffering. Don't, if you let's say if you're a murderer or a thief and an evil doer, a troublesome meddler, which we'll get into in a, a second, but this is this contrast that he certainly is taking it to. So when we when we see this, is that I, what I always always value in this is that you know is what was this, what is that motivation for enduring, and it really is for this very purpose of this building up. And what Paul is saying is is that which is the church. It's for the sake of His body, you know, the, the building up of the body itself. And it builds the church, and it builds the church through faith, the faithfulness of, of His own. In the passage, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may be also be glad with exceeding joy. It refers to this revelation of His glory. And it's referring, as we would know, it, to Christ's second coming in Matthew twenty-four, verse thirty. The passage where, where it says, "What you'll see this lightning, and all everyone will see." Right? You familiar with the passage? Yeah. What? On the to the on the mountain, Jesus. Hmm. The thing that he is it at this first experience that, that he experienced. I'm smiling because I like the blown away comment. Because it's, it's, Peter gives, he repeats himself about the rejoicing again. And what he says in there is that it's going to be with exceeding or exultation. In other words, it's, it's a blow away type of thing. You're exactly right. He did. He, he, he had a glimpse of this. and You're exactly right. It's sort of this awesomeness of the what is the true joy. And it again, he's talking again about this Second Coming, as the image of what he saw. It, it is this Revelation 19 picture, you know, of Christ re- returning to establish the Millennial Kingdom. I mean, it, it is be, it's beyond words to be able to describe. I can't, I can't do it. But in return, believers respond with this awesomeness. It's the blow-away type of response. I appreciate that so much because, I mean, come on. We get excited about things and you, you can just feel the energy that just comes from your innards, more or less. And this is this exalt- type of joy that we see. It's rejoicing with exaltation. I love Spurgeon's comment. He says, if, we, if you do not share in Christ's humiliation, how can you expect to share in His exaltation? If we are not in a relationship with Christ's sufferings, how can you expect to rejoice and to keep on rejoicing with exultation a very profound thought what he refers to in here is the rejoicing in the name of Christ and when we see that, is it's this cause of reproach or this evil hatred it goes back to the name of Christ it's the Acts passage where they themselves found it worthy to suffer for the name of Christ it is directed specifically towards believers now question for you. If Christ's name sums up all that He is, what does, this, in the passage there, what does for the name of Christ mean to you? For the name
1: the other name. I've never heard of it. a work or stumble or kick something uh, or any other. The bottom line is, is thrown in like this, it opens up opportunity to be jealous for His name. No other name
0: given heaven whereby we... That's why... It's, in fact, that's the, the first, that's the X 4 passage specifically that says that, the Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given. under heaven given among men which, must, which we must be saved. There's none. It's, it's everything. 5.41, we read that one the same thing, you know, just going ahead. Acts 9.16, I will show him how many things, this is, you know, to Paul, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So what is the implication of that, of the name, as it relates to proclaiming it, Then, for believers? That's exactly what, what that means. So in other words, it implies that there is a public proclamation of his name for the the name's sake. So, and and, and what that does, in other words, that's what causes the hostility in the world that you just described and the response to it. So how the non-believer culturally is using that name, what about us? So there's an implication for us in this thing is, is that are you using the name? When we identify with the name, and we're telling others about the name, we're going to get reproached. We're going to get insults. We'll, we'll, we'll get persecuted. I mean, th- you can think of examples right now. So, how do we, how, where are you? Are we hesitant about the name? I think that we identify with the name, but what Peter is saying is, is that, no, 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 there's no middle of the road here. If you identify with the name, this is what it looks like. In other words, implication is, is that then you're proclaiming it. All hatred and violence of the world are against it. Christians are not diminished in other words, Christian does not diminish their blessedness. Actually they are more blessed for suffering. Why? Because the spirit of God of glory spirit of glory of God rests upon him. Going back to that passage, this is a very interesting part of it. Peter writes again in verse fourteen, if you are reproached for the name of Christ blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you it's a very interesting statement so what do you think peter means by that that the spirit of god the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you what
1: are to deal with pray that give
0: other responses that come to mind
1: Saying that, um, um, for people to see God in us, so it rests on us.
0: To... Yeah, it, it, I, I want to use that as a, it's a perfect image, Mark, and that's a passage I was going to have us look at because it's like a total abandonment of everything that's happening because he saw the Lord sitting at the right hand of the Father. And what he's meaning by this, he's talking specifically in this presence in the power of the Spirit it is going back to to what you were saying mark uh, from the standpoint of this rest resting describes it from the standpoint of comfort but it is literally this resting in this place of blessing this place of divine protection and so with it also becomes this that i got i got the most powerful there's no one more powerful than God with me. So it's almost a, also a strength with it, is that you can just rest now. And so we have this comfort, but it also gives us this... So in other words, it is this objective presence. And I, I want to contrast that with the word subjective. What's the difference between objective and subjective? It's it's fact, right? Subjective is something that... It's me. It's... It's not, and in no way is it. And so it's very factual. It is the very presence and the power of the Spirit that you have. It is this indwelling of the Spirit that is so perfectly articulated in so many places in Scripture that you have. That's where it it says the Spirit of glory It rests, if God rests upon you, is to find this place of always this reference in our lives of God's presence and the power of the Spirit. That's what gets us to this place of understanding what rejoicing, keep on rejoicing amid persecution, how that can be accomplished. Now, turn with me because I want you to remember that passage, what he's saying, I'll read it to you again. He says that that the spirit of of glory and of God rests upon you. Just for the the sake of looking at it, is that go back to Isaiah chapter eleven. Isaiah chapter eleven. Verses one and two. Someone can read that. forth,
1: and a branch from the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of counsel and Spirit of knowledge, and Spirit of the Lord.
0: The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Okay. Do you see the similarity in there? And so, it's just a question. Do you think there's any connection between the two? Yeah, okay, well, here's how we can do this. Let's go back a little bit, just from your knowledge. And I'm not going to take you to each of these. What do we know about chapter 11? This is, this is a, it's all about what? A glorious messianic passage, isn't it? It's all about the Messiah. What's really interesting is if you go back a few chapters to chapter 6, and I can just do this for you to bridge it real quickly. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13, it talks about this... <laughs> this process of of cutting down to the stump you know israel chapter 6 verse 13 but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down so the holy seed shall be its stump and in that passage here we see basically this announcement that's happening is that God is going to, he's going to cut back. He's going to prune back to literally this stump, His people, Israel. And then we see as the chapter's going on. Go, Isaiah chapter seven is the. We start to see you know the the again the messianic passage of that that it's calling for um, this Messiah. A child will be born. Chapter nine. And unto, unto us a child is born, and, and um, a son is given, and the, the government will be bound his shoulder, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then, in chapter 11 then, as you can see, where there is this stump from chapter 6 of Isaiah that now starts to spring what? In chapter 11, verse 1, this new root... This branch will grow from His roots. It's the Messiah from the stem of Jesse. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. So this connection that we see is that the Messiah was clearly in this passage. Now it says in here that the Messiah needed the Spirit of the Lord. (laughs) Interesting. To rest upon Him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and strength. So why would the Messiah need the power of the Holy Spirit? Why would the second person of the Trinity?
1: I think a concept that we have to keep in mind is when the Spirit of glory of God rests upon you, it's not a separate entity that is sitting on top. It is becoming one. It is a feeding. It's a nourishment. The Spirit of God was nourishing the Messiah.
0: Hebrews 12. Right, Hebrews 12.2, what? He, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame He had set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Spirit of God poured out on the Messiah who suffered. Exactly what you're saying. The Spirit was there to accomplish the task. It's to, do, to accomplish the task. Going back, just like it was here, to be born. <laughs> to be born into a world of sin and yet be sinless. And to live a perfect life in obedience to the Father, the Spirit was there. You see how the this completed sufferings of Christ and the continued sufferings of Christians, they're intimately related there. Paper passage, you know, what is this? Galatians two twenty. that I have been I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Second Timothy. We've endured suffering; we will reign with Him then. So, interesting connection that we can draw from that as it relates to the Spirit. But I really want to talk a little bit more about this. what are some of the ways that the Holy Spirit ministers to us today as believers? Thoughts? Just a question. Spirit is alive and working in so many ways in our lives. And I feel as though that sometimes we just need to pause and to reflect on that, all that the Spirit is doing in ministering to believers today, bring us to those those greater perspectives. Uh, I felt the Spirit minister to me in showing me the wrong perspective that I had in a circumstance. You know, almost daily, those types of things It's the convictions that we experience. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Whenever we see this term of glory, it's, re- it's referring to literally the essential attribute of the Spirit. It is God's presence. It's His earthly presence. It's that Shekinah glory that we see. And just don't have time necessarily but to go through uh, some of those passages that help us to reflect on this statement of the Spirit of glory. It is this presence, this objective presence that we were referring to earlier. And so I, I believe that in this situation, as it would be for us, is that it causes these early, even the Jewish believers themselves to really think about that from the standpoint of this, the reminder of the Shekinah, the very the very symbol in that Old Testament of, the, of God's presence itself. The rest... I think you, Mark, you mentioned that. It is this refreshment term that we see in here. And in here, it is also this relief, this this comfort we have. And it is this intermission that we have from the toil itself. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The Spirit was present with the Messiah to allow the task to, to fulfill those tasks. And just like He is with us as well. In the Galatians 5, 23 that we mentioned, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. So, using Mark's thing is that you're, we're familiar with that passage. Go ahead and turn there and, um, as an example of how the Holy Spirit's power rested upon Stephen. I think, Mark, you referenced that. It's in Acts, Acts 7. Someone want to read from 55-60? Uh, to 60? and you know, we can just identify in a quickly summary type statement and said what does it uh what does it look like and in right hand
1: and said look i see the hen they cried out with a loud voice stop their ear god and saying Or jesus result down and cried out with a loud voice do not charge them with this i
0: mean i guess love that in verse 55 um uh, it says he full of the spirit then gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. So, how how did the Spirit What was the Spirit doing there?
1: Verse 15, it's also interesting that, though, like, what to say, and boldly, those made it just to get, um, to to a decision. Get the neck uncircumcised. It's right. Um, but Lord told me to say It's fascinating to me that He goes from every day and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. So, it's I'm not sure. Yeah, and that's
0: really the sort of this. You know, how you can take each of these and run every one of those directions off that mark. I agree. I just threw up here. The spirit-controlled grace. I mean, it is this. When he said that he was full of the Spirit, um, I understand what that means. Is you know, in Paul, often we talk about being full of the Spirit. It is the full the fullness of engagement of the Spirit that is all-consuming. To give that very clear perspective, that just is, that there's just this contentment, this ultimate peace, this ultimate rest, this ultimate relief of his present circumstance in suffering of what is happening to him, being beaten and such, and it didn't matter. It's like he saw all that mattered, and what he also saw was the promise of Christ sitting at the right hand as he said he would. Standing.
1: think, it's oh God... It's the comfort uh, and and no fear of death. Holy Spirit provides to the world doesn't see the unbelievers face
0: each at death. There's a un, you know very much a, a fear or terror or whatever. But Christians, it's bringing us through that very difficult but yet uh, time that we know with comfort. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that, George. And and. Think of a time, okay? We, we, we see that, that example in Stephen. Think of an example right now of even in your own life or the life of another believer that you witnessed a supernatural controlling. In other words, this total spirit-controlled grace in a, mid, a very... <laughs> Naturally, we couldn't understand how you would respond with such grace. I, I've seen it in 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 some individuals. that have lost loved ones. That it's I'm going. To, our natural response is to be uncontrolled, as opposed to being completely controlled by the Spirit, and seeing that manifest itself. Such a great testimony and witness. And that's a reminder for me too. Is is that that's what? That's exactly what they saw in Stephen, and that. What Stephen has, this indwelling of the Spirit, we have too. It's an engagement of that in our own lives.
1: Wherever, wherever you go,
0: your getting... You're familiar with in Second Corinthians, Paul's testimony from the standpoint of regarding his grace is sufficient for me. In what that passage, that's Second Corinthians 12, verses nine and ten. I'll read it to you. It says, um, concerning this thing, I pleaded with with the Lord three times, that it might depart from me. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for here it is, my strength, my power, that's it, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities than that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Just as we just described. So it is Spirit- controlled grace that we see circumstantially spirit engaged power the spirit's power of grace in this in, the, in our own testimonies the spirit of, of glory of God rests upon you yes praise God for the ex, examples of scripture that at any <laughs> any given day moment we can make a direct connection relationally with their circumstances. Uh, where he he transitions now is that in response to that, Peter writes, he says, um, if you are a reproach for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. On their part he blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, as a busybody or as a troublesome meddler. In other people's matter. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. What he's going to now put in contrast for us as we continue our discussion uh, next week into this thing is the contrast takes this from suffering for wrong versus right reasons themselves. In other words, just a question to you, is it true that not all suffering brings Holy Spirit relief? Yes, it is true. And so, as we get into this passage, you know, we're going to be contrasting specifically this trouble that stems from literally a, a description here of very lawless type of actions. And it does not in itself constitute suffering for righteousness. Lawless actions that do not constitute suffering. Righteousness, And what Peter is going to list for us is four areas or categories and essentially all sin. The first two are murder and thief or th- robbery. And these are really types of capital type crimes themselves. So they're the bad things, the real bad things. The second level, and by the way, this is really in the ancient times there. That's how they would classify them. Um, from, at the second level... He refers to these evildoers or these troublesome meddlers. And these are essentially more gen- general level type crimes. In other words, anything that is not a capital type crime would be classified as an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. And so in other words, it refers to all crimes. Two examples is in chapter 2, verse 12 and 2.14. And it's, whenever they see this word, uh, NIV, uh, evildoer. I like it in the NIV for just for the sake of understanding it. It means like any other kind of criminal. That's how they might state that. So the suffering for the wrong reasons, and this is where I'll kind of just hide off for today. This first one is, uh, I was somewhat confused and uh, I'm using my own word there again, see. Uh, perplexed. There again, using my own words again. I find it interesting. I'll use that word instead. I find it interesting is that Peter used with these capital crimes, murder, thievery, evildoers, he works in this somewhat uh, meddler type of comment along with that. And a meddler is some, someone who meddles into a matters that belong to someone else. And so our question, and this is where we'll pick it up, but there's something to think about, is why do you think Peter used this Somewhat minor type of term in comparison with the big ones
1: <laughs>
0: yeah i want to i 'll tie this over because I think Paul gives us a couple of examples, but i do wanna, I, I do want to dig in a little deeper to that because our our natural tendency is that we 're just going to look at the majors and not the minors and uh, I'm going to tell you is that I think part of this is the minor things. And I believe also there is a direct connection, what we would view as minor as it relates to just normal societal type of issues. I think that's really the messaging that he's going to drive at because of all that we studied already in Chapter 2 and 3 about conduct. Conduct in the workplace, conduct um, with government, and so I think there's a direct connection as it relates to why he would use this minor term. So we'll pick that up next week. And also
1: the other thing,
0: too, you, that so, I appreciate you saying that. Um, when we look at all of that in itself, that if you think about even... Uh, we, we, a lot of babies are getting born around the church right now. It's kind of a neat time, you know. So, of course, you know we're blessed to be one of those that are kind of in the loop of this. And I'm sitting there thinking, holding her last night, I'm thinking about all of the suffering that she's going to go through. It's like, congratulations, you're going to suffer. <laughs> Think about how you, uh, you address a graduate. Congratulations, now you're really going to suffer. Perspectives on that. So We'll pick this up next week and we'll try to close out the, the passages and then uh, I'll get it finished all teed up and then Mark's going to be able to we'll tag team off of this. So, Cheryl, can I ask you to close us in prayer? I appreciate that.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you so for bringing us together to study a portion of your words. Help us to this education session that morning and through the rest of this time. With us, God, God and direct us. In Christ's name we pray.
0: Amen. Thank you. Okay, we will see you next week.